Let's grab your Bibles and we'll turn open to the book of Colossians this morning. And Colossians is in the New Testament, that's towards the back of the Bible. It's after the Gospels, so after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts and Romans, and 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And this morning we're looking at Colossians 3, verses 22 through 4, 1. Let's pray before we read God's word this morning. Lord our God, we are thankful that you have not left us alone until that glorious day that we just sung about, but that you have poured out your spirit, you and the Son, into our hearts, made these hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And you have given us your word from on high. And we do pray that those two things would be working and moving and stirring in this room this morning. Would you speak to us by your word? And would you apply it by your spirit? We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Colossians 3, verse 22 through 4, 1. This is the holy and errant word of God. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for his wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is a difficult text, not an easy text. Uh, One of you asked me this week, what in the world are you going to say about slavery? And it would have been easy to tuck these verses into the rest of the household passage and addressed it while we were addressing fathers and children, but I think there is a lot here, and so I wanted to look at it on its own this morning. Slavery, it's not an easy subject. And the Bible's lack of a frontal attack upon the institution of slavery is often the greatest criticism that's leveled at the Christian faith. I've heard people argue that if the Bible does not speak on something that is this clearly a moral evil, then what moral ground can the Bible actually stand upon? And that is a real concern. In light of that this morning, let me first offer three points of preface before we kind of go into this text and look at what Paul has to say to us this morning. And these three points of preface are in regards to slavery in the New Testament. First, when you and I hear the word slavery, we bring all kinds of emotional baggage to 
to this conversation and to uh, this idea. And I would say, rightfully so, it, it conjures up in our minds the, the packed slave ships going across the Atlantic and the horrible injustices of American slave trade in the South. What one famous historian once famously said of it, he said it was a peculiar institution. We could more accurately say that it was a pernicious institution. Chattel slavery that involved horrific abuse and the selling of men and women and separating children and the stealing of people from the shores of Africa, all based upon race, is one of the greatest blights on Western world's history. But this is where we need to be a little cautious. Because the slavery of the first century in the Roman world was not the slavery of the 17th and 18th and 19th century of the American South. In fact, it was quite different. The Roman Empire at the time that Colossians was written, when Paul was writing this book and he is sending it to this little city of Colossae, the empire was filled with slaves. Historians estimate that in Rome itself, that city, and then, then in the peninsula of Italy, that 85 to 90 percent of all inhabitants of Rome and the peninsula of Italy were slaves. Hard to imagine, 85 to 90 percent. In the entire empire, it's estimated that one-third Anywhere from one-fifth to one-third of all inhabitants of the Roman Empire were slaves. That there were between three and six million slaves at the writing of this letter. But it was not based upon race. Most people were slaves because they had become prisoners of war of the Roman Empire or because they had actually sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt to someone that they owed money to. Slaves could accumulate wealth and own their own possessions. They could even purchase their freedom from the wealth that they had earned. Roman law allowed for someone, usually after seven years of service, to then be set free. And almost every single slave was set free by the age of 30, according to Roman law. Slaves were often semi-skilled laborers. They were artisans. They were lawyers. They were... Writers, they were poets, they were teachers, they were physicians, they were administrators, and they were allowed to work these jobs, and as they worked these jobs, it was usually two-thirds of their pay that would go to their owner, and then they were allowed to keep one-third of their pay so that they could eventually pay off their debt and purchase their own freedom. It was not quite the evil institution that comes into our minds with the transatlantic slave trade, and the American South. And yet, I think we can all agree that slavery in any form is not desirable. It is not good. And we need to go no further than none of us would want to be a slave rather than to be free. And so we wish the New Testament was a little more upfront and had a frontal attack upon the institution of slavery, and that it told all slaves to seek your freedom in any way possible and all slave masters to free 
their slaves. But this is the second point I want to make. Paul's letter is not written in some kind of fairy tale, imaginative world. It's not even the the fallen 21st century world. It's not even that. We tend to think that if he had just hit this head on, that it would have tackled the issue. But as one theologian said about this, he said to ask Paul to command the freeing of slaves is to be guilty of unhistorical thinking. That is, this wasn't a modern democracy in which you could lobby or create political change and pressure to affect change. But this is the third point I want to underscore as a preface. That though the New Testament does not offer a frontal assault upon the institution of slavery, neither does it condone slavery or endorse slavery. And I think it is more than clear that what Paul is doing is that he is laying down the groundwork for the abolition of slavery. Listen, Paul recognizes the benefits of being free and no longer being enslaved. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 there, he says to slaves, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. As we saw in the book of Philemon, when he sends this letter to Philemon and Onesimus is delivering this letter that Paul appeals to Philemon gently but strongly and says, free this brother. Free him. Or I think of even these verses here. Don't underestimate his admonition to masters here. To treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This was against the social norms. This is absolutely revolutionary. And even more so, I think you will see from our passage that the seeds are laid that will bring forth fruit. It it would take time, too long a time, for people to see that the ethics of Christianity are incompatible with the institution of slavery, but people would eventually see it. Make no mistake, that is why, whether it is William Wilberforce or John Newton or the Wesleys or in our own country, Harriet Beecher Stowe and Theodore Weld, that it was Christians that led to the abolition of slavery. It's the fruit of the seeds that Paul has planted in the New Testament. So with that as a preface, I want to turn to the text. And as we turn there, I'm, I'm struck with this, I've been thinking about this all week. You know, Paul is in prison in Rome. He has been imprisoned, and he has written this letter to Colossae, this book of Colossians, and he's also written a second letter, this letter to Philemon that we looked at during the summer. And he sends two people with these letters, this book of Colossians and this book of Philemon, these two letters. He sends two people from Rome to Colossae with these letters. And one of them is Onesimus. And Onesimus is a slave. He's a runaway slave who has come to saving faith in Rome, most likely because he came across the Apostle Paul and through Paul's ministry, as it seems in Philemon there, that Onesimus came to faith as he encountered Paul. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Colossae, back to his master Philemon with these two letters in hand. And so when these verses are read, 
Onesimus is standing there. Slaves, obey your masters in everything. But not just him. He would not have been the only slave. Many of the early converts of Christianity were slaves. So much so that the Christian faith was ridiculed in those first centuries as being a women's religion, a poor person's religion, and a slave's religion. Because so many came to saving faith and filled the churches. Therefore, this is very practical for the early church. They needed to know how to live with one another as Christians. <coughs> Especially in light of their freedom in Christ. What does it mean to, to, look with, to live with each other in the body of Christ when, when we've been united to Christ and, and we have freedom in Christ? Paul is constantly concerned to press home that in Christ we have been set free. And it feels like here that Paul is lowering the hammer and he's tightening the chains around these slaves' wrists. I think Paul here is asserting how free the Christian slave is. It may not be our idea of freedom. We have the tendency to think about freedom based upon circumstances and kind of a circumstantial kind of way. But Paul asserts the freedom these slaves in Christ have even in their earthly circumstances of bondage. It is real and it is solid. It is not dependent upon circumstances. And so it is a freedom that is actually superior. And I want to look at that this morning in five ways. First is that Paul, by addressing them, emphasizes that these Christian slaves have freedom from a sense of unworthiness. They have worth. Before this household passage, Paul proclaimed who Christ is and who we are in Christ. And he is applying now what it means to live in Christ. He's concerned with our identification in Christ. And as we have been united with Christ, he says that this is to impact our living. And so as slaves, even as slaves in these houses, as he's addressed husbands, as he's addressed wives, as he's addressed parents, as he's addressed children, so now he addresses slaves. That your Christian faith is to impact your living. Which is quite unique. Slaves obey everything and everything those who are your earthly masters. He appeals to them directly. Why? Because they have inherent dignity and worth. Again, as he has done with wives and as he's done with children, he addresses slaves as human beings, as people with rational minds and control of their own wills, but most importantly, as members of the body of Christ. For people that could feel as though they are subhuman and considered less worthy than their masters, maybe even in the church, Paul elevates them. He, he lifts them up. He addresses them. He sets them free from any concept of being unable to make their own decisions or having a right to make their own decisions. He appeals to them. In the same line that he appeals to masters. This is revolutionary. That slaves would, 
would be appealed to right alongside their masters in the same assembly, the same congregation. Why does he do this here? I think Paul addresses slaves and masters here because he was concerned that they know their freedom in Christ, but that they not abuse it in their relationships with one another. That is, you are free, you you have worth, but don't you abuse it. You can almost hear the, the errant thinking might have gone through a slave's mind. Didn't didn't Paul just say in chapter 2 of this letter that we have been set free from the domain of darkness and we have been transferred to the kingdom of light? Didn't he just say in chapter 3 that we have been united to Christ, we have been raised with Christ, so we are to set our mind on heavenly things and not on earthly things? Didn't Paul just say, just a few verses before this, here there is not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We've been transferred. We've been set free. We're not to set our mind on earthly things. In the body of Christ, there is no slave. There is no free. So, you can imagine a slave saying, well, I'm united to Christ. And so, my obligation to you, my need to submit to you, those bonds are loosened because I only have one master and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Though they have worth, Paul doesn't want Christian slaves mistaking their freedom in Christ as an excuse to create a breach between themselves and their earthly authorities. It's the same reason that he addresses wives and their relationship with husbands so that they don't flaunt their freedom in that relationship with their husbands. The same reason that he addresses children who are believers, that they don't flaunt this freedom that they have in their relationship with their parents. But he appeals to them as as members of the body of Christ, equal members. These Christian slaves have freedom from a sense of unworthiness. Within the church, the relationship between master and slave, it it is completely swallowed up. But in home, in the workplace, and the broader society, that relationship may have and did continue. Of course, our situation is not the same in the 21st century, but I think it translates. We've been similar. We have no right to disregard our employer or our boss because they are a Christian and we are a Christian. Somehow we don't have to Honor them. It may be that you are even an officer in the church, an elder or a deacon, and you work for someone else that is in the church who is not an elder or a deacon, and they are your boss, and you're to submit to them there. The first church I served, Meadowview, it was in uh, rural North, North Carolina. It was there that there was a, it was a factory town. It was a textile town originally where... They made uh, a lot of textiles, and, and the middle management of that textile factory were Presbyterians, 
and they had a Presbyterian church. And they decided one day that they needed to reach out to their workers, the the laborers, the blue-collar people in that church. And so they went to the other side of town where all the blue-collar workers lived, and they planted this church that I eventually became a pastor in. And they would lead Bible studies there, and they were leading their, their workers to saving faith. And many of them came to saving faith. And eventually, some of those blue-collar workers, those men that were working on the line in the textile factory, they became elders and deacons, and some of their employers, their middle management employers, were not elders or deacons. I remember talking about this with one of the men in the church, and he said it was different in the workplace than it was in the church. I had to recognize that this was your boss. But here in the church, this man was your elder. It's also true in reverse. Paul tells masters in the first verse of chapter 4 to treat their slaves justly and fairly. They have worth. Just as much worth as you masters. Paul is saying, in effect, if they don't have worth because they are your slaves, and you're their master, then you know what? You don't have worth. Because you have a master who is in heaven. So you know what? Treat them fairly. Treat them justly. Second, Paul asserts their freedom from people-pleasing. He says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The word eye service there is a word that Paul made up. Uh, But we understand it, don't we? It can be done in one of two ways. It's that service that is motivated by the watchful eyes of others. We could labor with more diligence. We could work a little harder when we know that there is an authority in the room We're concerned that they see that we're not working hard, and so when they're around, we work. We work just a little harder. Growing up, my grandmother, I grew up with a single mom a great deal of my life, and so my grandmother was always concerned that I'd be helping my mom around the house. And I would get that speech every time she came over. And so whenever I knew that my grandma was coming over and I heard the doorbell ring, I would immediately get up, turn off the television, and act like I was doing something. The authority was there. Grandma. Or it could be that we are working hard so as to earn the favor of our boss, to earn that eye of commendation, of recognition, of praise. There's bondage in this. Because it's rooted in fear of the boss or the master. But Paul asserts that the slave is free from people-pleasing. Because he sets their obedience in a whole new context. He says, obey in everything your earthly masters. They are just earthly. But you, obey them as you fear the Lord. Understand that you're, you're laboring for someone greater than these earthly masters. You're, you're labor fearing the Lord with sincerity of, it, of heart, or, or I think better translated, singleness of heart. It's for His glory. It's to honor Him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, He goes on to say. 
And how incredibly freeing is that? And they labor. I think we can say by extension, when we labor, it isn't merely a service for frail and earthly and maybe even harsh masters and owners and, and bosses to please them, to gain their recognition. No, we are laboring for Christ. That is freeing. To know you are not serving men at all. That's what Paul says. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men. Isn't that interesting? But Paul, you say, be obedient to your masters and everything. Aren't they laboring for men? Yes. But their labor is so focused upon doing it for the glory of the Lord that it's as if their labor for their boss is eclipsed. It matters so little in their view. Isn't that what Paul said back in verse 17? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Christ, they are set free from people pleasing. Third, he asserts that they are free from meaningless toil. You are serving the Lord Christ, Paul says in verse 24. Your earthly work matters for the glory of Christ. It matters. I've worked some awful jobs. I have detasseled corn for multiple summers. I have washed pots and pans that are big enough that you could climb into them at Old Country Buffet. Uh, I worked at Baskin Robbins. Well, maybe that was a good one. I worked my way through college as a telemarketer, selling everything from Barbie dolls to cell phones to hair club for men. Let the jokes uh, come. (laughs) Awful jobs. And all that labor matters. Matters more than a paycheck. Matters more than punching the clock. When I was in seminary, I worked full-time at an insurance company as an insurance agent. And the owners of the company were Christians, and they employed a lot of seminary students, I think, for two reasons. One is that they were trying to help out seminary students. So I couldn't have made it through seminary without this job because I could work there full-time, and then I could squeeze in classes around full-time work, and they allowed me to study in between phone calls at my desk. So what would happen is, is a phone call, they would show ads on television and a phone call would come in and we would answer the phone and we would give the person a quote on insurance and then we would try and talk them into coming into the store to purchase the insurance. And the phones would ring nonstop, but there was a cue. So you, you would have, after each phone call, about 20 seconds before you received the next phone call. And every once in a while, you would have a minute or two. And it's amazing over a 14-hour day how those seconds add up and how many pages you can read and how many Greek verbs and conjugations you can memorize every 20 seconds. I think the second reason, though, that they employed us as seminary students was because they thought men and women going into full-time ministry would work hard and would be dedicated 
But that wasn't always the case. I sat next to a man that, for a couple of years, that was working on his PhD in Hebrew. And there was this nifty little button on our phones that you could press that would put you unavailable. And so you wouldn't get the next call. And that man would often press that unavailable button and he would sit there for 10, 15, 20 minutes and not answer a single call. And do you know why? Because he was studying his Hebrew. He wanted more than anything else and he would often tell us that he was going back to the Bible college that he graduated from to teach Hebrew to those Bible college students. This was his goal. But he was confused. He thought that his menial task before him of answering phones was of little importance in the kingdom, that it was absolutely meaningless toil. And he thought his future ministry at the college was all important. You're serving the Lord Christ, Paul says. You're serving the Lord Christ. Wherever a Christian finds himself or herself in that place, at that moment, in that station of life, in that realm, with that duty, they are called to serve the Lord. This is your field of labor. That brother's field of labor was that insurance company answering those phones, giving quotes, and he was to do so to the glory of the Lord. That was his calling in those hours. He thought he was honoring his heavenly master by preparing for teaching at that Bible college while he was denying and not serving the one for whom he said he was preparing to serve. My friends, our service of the Lord is never a future service that denies our present service. Everything we do now in the present matters. It's incredibly freeing and encouraging. It matters. We're set free from meaningless toil. What you do is not meaningless, no matter your daily chore or work, whether it's changing diapers or doing dishes or whether it's giving insurance quotes or writing legal briefs or weeding your garden or working on the GM line, whatever it is. Studying as students. It's not meaningless toil. It doesn't matter what it is that you've been given to do. It has been given to you to do to the glory of God. You're serving the Lord Christ. We are full-time servants. Happy slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our lot as Christians. Isn't it fascinating how often... In the New Testament scriptures, the Christian is called a servant or a slave. Doulos, a slave. Fascinating. Because we are all in full-time employment. And that never allows us to hit the unavailable button. We're chained to him who bought us. There was a documentary about 10 years or so ago that came out called Expelled. I remember going to watch it. It was about 
intelligent design and Darwinism and how scientists that believe in intelligent design are often excluded from conversations and from the academy. And I found it interesting that one Darwinist scientist in the movie that he said he didn't have a problem with religion. He just wanted it in its right place. And he said, quote this, he said, we want religion to be something fun that people do on the weekend, but not something that affects the rest of their life. But as Paul is pointing out, our entire life is identified with Christ. He died for us. and We died with him. He was raised for us. And we are raised with him. We are in union with him. So our entire life is bound to him. I'm not just a husband. I am to be a Christian husband. You're not just a mother, but a Christian mother. Not just a a GM factory worker, but a Christian GM factory worker. Not just a student, but a Christian student. Not just a slave, but a Christian slave. It affects, no, it consumes and orients every aspect of our life that we are united to Christ and that He is our Lord. In our minds and in our hearts and in our living and in our theology, there is no division between the sacred and the secular. There isn't. All of life is to be lived to His glory. All of life is a living sacrifice unto Him. Our Christian faith is not just a weekend hobby. All of our life is to be sacred living. And that means that there is no meaningless toil. It all matters. Isn't that freeing and encouraging and life-giving? That where you are at is where the Lord has placed you for a purpose. It's not less meaningful than that person over there or that job that you've dreamed about or that state that you want to be in. Where he has placed you now, he has placed you with purpose for his glory. Free. And that leads to our final point. Paul asserts that they have been set free from rewardless effort. Our toil is not only meaningful, it reaps benefits for eternity. Paul says in verse 24 and 25 that these slaves, and by extension us, are to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The Lord does not ignore. He does not forget our service. No, He's a rewarder of those who serve Him. Freedom is suggested here to the slave. We all do things out of motivation. We are motivated for one end or another to do this thing or that thing. And Paul is saying here, here is your great motivation, slave. Here is your great motivation for serving and obeying your master in all things. You are gaining an inheritance. Riches that are eternal. 
you will receive, he says. Think how wonderful that news must have been to a slave in the Roman world that by law could not inherit anything. You're going to receive. You're going to inherit. And this isn't fading. This is something that's eternal, abundant and everlasting. As Christians, our great aim should be to get to that last day and to appear before that judgment seat and to hear those words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. That's our great pursuit. That's our great aim. Not from our employer, not from our earthly masters, but from the Lord Christ. And it frees us to know we're laboring with that reward at the end. So a quote from Tim Keller this week where he said this. He said, if I have the smile of God, all other frowns are inconsequential. And isn't that true? Or at least it should be. When I was in college, I used to study in the stacks. Uh, the stacks were about three levels below in the basement of the library, you know, where they just have stacks and stacks of books. And I liked it down there. I liked the quiet and nobody else would go down there. It worked until I started dating this blonde-haired girl who would never go down there with me. But that's where I studied. And I would take breaks from studying and would always wander back to the history section and especially to this 25-volume shelf that had accounts right after the Civil War, the federal government sent civic workers down to the South to interview uh, those who had previously been in slavery and to write down their accounts. And I used to stand there as a break from whatever it was that I was reading or studying, and I used to lean up against the, the wall of books, and I would just read account after account of these African-American slaves in the South and what they endured and what they said. Last night as well, or this week, I was also looking through some slave spirituals, reading a few dozen of them, old songs that these African-American slaves used to sing. And I came across the same thing that I remember noticing when I was reading through these accounts back in college is that two things immediately jump out to me. One is that many of these Christian slaves had a joy that was palpable, that almost leapt off the page. And the second is that they constantly spoke about heaven and had eyes looking to heaven. And that inheritance that awaited them there. And that's no mistake. Those two things go together. I read one description this week of a secret slave prayer meeting when slaves were not allowed to meet to pray together or worship by a slave by the name of Peter Randolph. He was a slave in Prince George County, Virginia until he was freed in 1847. He said this about the prayer meetings. He said, the slave forgets all his sufferings 
except to remind others of the trials during the past week, exclaiming, thank God I shall not live here always. Then they passed from one another, shaking hands and bidding each other farewell. As they separate, they sing a parting hymn of praise. A Christian is set free from rewardless effort. All our labors matter, and it matters eternally when we shall receive the inheritance as a reward. These slaves understood that. I was reading one account of a Presbyterian pastor in the early 19th century who commented on how much the slaves loved Isaac Watts' hymns, especially the hymn, When I Can Read My Title Clear. You can understand why, because it focuses on heaven and on this reward, and we're going to close our service today singing it. And let me just read the stanza to you. When I read my title clear to mansions in the skies, I bid farewell to every fear and wipe my weeping eyes. Should earth against my soul engage and hellish darts be hurled, then I can smile at Satan's rage and face a frowning world. Let cares like a wild deluge come and storms of sorrow fall. May I but safely reach my home, my God, my heaven, my all. There I shall bathe my weary soul in seas of heavenly rest, and not a wave of trouble roll across my peaceful breast. I knew the inheritance that awaited them. As Christians, we are now sowing the seeds for the harvest that we will reap in eternity. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we shall all have to give an account for the things that we have done in our body. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is how we enter the gates of heaven. That is for sure. But you and I will be judged based upon what we've done with the talents and the gifts that he has given to us. Have we served him? the best of our abilities, for his glory and our station of life. A classmate at seminary wanted to be a faithful professor. No doubt he looked down upon his status as a phone bank insurance agent. He was getting his PhD, for goodness sakes. But we are to be faithful in a low place even as we would strive to be faithful in a high place. And if we are, we shall be amply rewarded. Do you still wish that Paul had hit slavery head on? Frontal assault. Maybe. But as one commentator said, in such circumstances, a pragmatic quietism was the most effective means of gaining room enough to develop the quality of personal relationships which would establish and build microcosms of transformed community. Those microforms of transformed community are the churches. As F.F. Bruce said, Paul did not seek to abolish or reshape existing social structures, but to Christianize them. He helps the slave to have a greater sense of freedom than mere bodily freedom, and yet he sows the seeds for that too. 
Paul's desire to see the kingdom go forward as God's people serve the Lord. And as the kingdom goes forward, social injustices and inequalities will be rectified. Right relationship and living before God causes lasting change between people. Lasting. So Paul planted the seeds for change, and and they bore fruit. Let us work, and let us live, and let us labor together as to the Lord. And just see what happens in our midst and around us for his glory. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we do exalt you this morning. We're thankful that you are a God of redemption. We thank you that you are a God who meets your people where they are at. That you are a God of living and eternal hope. We pray that we would be those that live as to the Lord. We have our eyes fixed on you upon men, upon pleasing men, and upon things on earth, truly set free, looking forward to that eternal inheritance that shall be ours in Christ, laboring for your glory and for that eternal reward. In Christ's holy name we pray.